and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We're so glad you've decided to join us this morning. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Waisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First, first link. link. Well, Gizmodo is proud to tell you that, or maybe not proud, as a potential warning, <laughs> psychedelic <laughs> mushrooms grew in a man's veins after he injected them. Oh, Sweet. no. <laughs> like, like little mushrooms inside his veins? I mean, by little mushrooms, you may mean spores or fungal infection, right. but yes. Uh, Bad enough. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This man's experiment with psychedelic mushrooms went disastrously wrong and nearly killed him, according to his doctors. It was a new case released this week. And in the report, they detailed how the man injected a tea made from the mushrooms into his body and Ooh. subsequently developed a life-threatening infection growing in his blood. Okay, wow. but you're not you're you're <laughs> supposed to ingest shrooms, right? Like I've never done them, but I don't think you inject no, them. Yeah, I don't think you're <laughs> supposed to do that. <laughs> The article notes this was a man's experiment. But... Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he was in the hospital for close to a month. He did survive. He was a 30-year-old man. He was brought to the emergency room by his family, <laughs> which must have been quite awkward, after, quote, <laughs> exhibiting confusion. To be fair, uh -huh. this guy did have a history of bipolar disorder as well as opioid dependence, and he had recently stopped taking his prescribed medications, according mm -hmm. to what the family told doctors. So he was trying to self-medicate his depression and dependence. He came across research showing some benefit from using psychedelic drugs like mushrooms and LSD. Days before the ER visit, he had decided to use mushrooms first by boiling them down into what he called mushroom tea, which as Jennifer noted, this is not uncommon. <laughs> what is uncommon is that he then filtered the mixture through a cotton swab and intravenously injected it. Soon after, he had lethargy, jaundice, diarrhea, and nausea, as well as vomiting up blood and by the oh, time okay. he was admitted to the ICU he was starting to have multiple organ failure including Ooh. lungs and kidney and this is a terrible time to have organ failure y'all yeah. yeah holy cow it took 22 days in the hospital including eight in the ICU but he did eventually pull through he's still being treated with a long-term course of antimicrobials so, yeah, don't do this. Yeah. I mean, he's advanced science, I guess. Well, and what's a little alarming is this isn't actually the first known case of someone injecting mushrooms into their body. Uh. During research, colleagues unearthed a case from 1985, which noted two similar cases. As with the current case, the 1985 case featured a 30-year-old man who became sick with vomiting and other symptoms post-injection. Yeah, I mean, for a second, I was going to make a joke about like, well, is he just high now? Like, is that just how he lives? But that sounds really <laughs> awful, so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like he's open season. I think if you're, if you're dumb enough to inject tea instead of just drinking, it was already tea. He could have just drunk it. It's not like it was some impossible form that would have tasted bad. Okay. 
I say yeah. you can make fun of him. That's my call. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting to me is like how many of these cases report that it's 30-year-old guys. What's happening to you men at 30 where you just kind of like <laughs> hit the switch of like, no, we got to go, you know, whole hog on some experimental weirdness here. <laughs> Their youth is gone and now they have nothing left. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you know, you, you got to hit that quarter-life crisis or one-third life crisis or life crisis, depending <laughs> right. on <how> Depending. <laughs> Uh, next link next Next link link. this article comes to us from bbc.com it's titled the secret letters of history's first known businesswomen so so around 1870 bc in the Mm. city of assur in northern iraq a woman called ahaha uncovered a case of financial fraud she had invested in long distance trade between assur and the city of kanesh in turkey But Ahaha's shares of the profit seem to have gone missing, possibly embezzled by one of her own brothers, Buzazi. Uh. So she grabbed a reed stylus and a clay tablet and scribbled a letter to another brother, a Sir Matapil, pleading for help. And she wrote, I have nothing else apart from these funds. Take care to act so that I will not be ruined. Uh, She instructed a Sir to recover her silver and update her quickly and wrote, Let a detailed letter come from you to me by the very next caravan. Now is the time to do me a favor and save me from financial stress. See, I wonder what's been lost in translation. Because, like, what's the Assyrian equivalent of, like, as per my last tablet? Like, you know, like, I don't imagine she was as polite as it maybe comes out to sound in our modern language, you know? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there might be some, uh, you know, politification of the letters, I guess, whatever that word would be. Uh, So the businesswoman's story is tied to that of the Assyrian merchant community as a whole. Uh, In their heyday, the Assyrians were among the the most successful and well-connected traders of the Near East. Their caravans of up to 300 donkeys would crisscross mountains and uninhabited plains carrying raw materials, luxury goods, and clay letters. So the commercial acumen allowed some of these women to slip into positions that were unusual for them at the time by functioning as their husband's trusted business partners. Mm. Uh, The traders, in turn, benefited from having literate and numerate wives who could help with day-to-day business as well as emergencies. One Assyrian merchant writes to his wife, Urgent, clear your outstanding merchandise, collect the gold of the son of Limishar, and send it to me. Please put all my tablets in safekeeping. Uh-oh. Yeah, sounds like Somebody's going to get audited? Like, I want to know what that is. Yeah. <laughs> Others ask their wives to pick specific tablets from the household's private archives to find financial information or settle a business matter. Mm-hmm. And the women, in turn, don't shy away from sending their husbands or brothers instructions and admonishments. An Assyrian woman called Naramtum writes to two men, What is this that you do not even send me a tablet two fingers wide with good news from you? Uh, <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> yeah, she she complains about a dispute involving debt and lost merchandise and urges the men to resolve it, closing with a brisk, send me the price of the textiles, cheer me up. <laughs> <laughs> Another chided her brother over a missing payment, saying, don't be so greedy that you ruin me. So like, you know, this is like business talk. Yeah, I, I love it. That's fantastic. And these women's independence stood in stark contrast to some other societies in the ancient Near East, such as near Babylonia in southern Iraq. 
Mitchell points out that in Assur, as in Kanesh, both the wife and the husband could ask for a divorce and would be treated the same in the proceedings. But at exactly the same time in Babylonia, if she dared to ask, she would just be put to death. Right. Uh, oh. Which is a little excessive, if you ask me. But consistent um, with history, if we're being honest here. Yeah. Uh, I like that we've registered your opinion on it. Like, you know, just, just for the record, I'm against putting women to death. If they want to <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I just want to make sure people know where I stand right, on the right. issue okay it's, good. Yeah. it's important yeah <laughs> so with that strengthened economic influence came better conditions in the women's personal lives a uh, number of them added clauses to marriage contracts that banned the men from taking second wives or traveling by themselves as in this example Asur Malik married Sukana, daughter of Arim Asur. Wherever Asur Malik goes he shall take her with him he shall not marry another woman in Kanesh which I don't know. It seems like there's some loophole in that clause to me. But <laughs> Just go whatever. right outside the city limits. and then, Yeah, no. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At some point, for reasons that are somewhat unclear, trade between Assur and Kanesh declined, and eventually Kanesh was deserted. But the women's clay tablets, hardened by house fires, remained in the abandoned homes to be discovered thousands of years later. Ah. And they captured a female experience so rarely documented in history, not of queens or high priestesses, but of working women just figuring out how to get through the next day. And all of this comes from only roughly half of those some 20,000 tablets from Kanesh. So there's likely tons more secrets waiting to spill out from this, you know, archaeological resource. Well, I'm all about more drama. I want to hear more (laughs) women being super mean to contractors and getting their money. Yeah, hell yeah. The original Karens? Yeah, Yeah. there you go. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. All right. Well, this one comes from Doug Johnson at Wired.com. It is about the corpse flower. Uh, are you familiar with the corpse flower? I Only, don't. I've think never so. been able to smell it, but I don't know if that's a bucket list item I really need to check off. Right. <laughs> well, it turns out apparently the corpse flower or Amorphophallus titanum is a little bit of a celebrity in the botany world. I had never seen one. They're these giant green and purple pod-looking things that are actually kind of reminiscent of the plant in Little Shop of Horrors. Yes. And they initially grow upward in a sort of rounded stalk. And then when it's time to bloom, this outer layer peels open into a single massive flower. Hmm. What they're most well known for is their absolutely putrid stench which is used to draw in pollinator insects that would normally lay their eggs in rotting meat or animal dung. Unfortunately, the corpse flower is endangered, and one of the reasons for this is they only bloom once every few years, and then they only stay in bloom for about 24 to 36 hours. In 2015, a corpse flower at the Chicago Botanic Garden suddenly began to bloom, and over the course of a few days, it drew in 75,000 visitors, as well as another 300,000 viewers online. So people love these things. They're fascinating plants, I guess, but they feel like creatures. Right. Only about a thousand corpse flowers still exist in the wild, mostly in their native home of Sumatra, and another 500 or so are kept in various botanical gardens around the world. But these captive specimens suffer from a severe lack of biodiversity, and many are actually genetically identical, which makes them very susceptible to being wiped out by pathogens. Mm -hmm. Another big problem is that corpse flowers produce recalcitrant seeds, which means they can't be dried out or frozen for preservation. They just die. So, for Mm -hmm. example, you may have heard of the Svalbard Global Seed Vault in Norway, which Mm -hmm. has seeds from almost a million different plant species, but it has no corpse flower seeds because they just cannot be preserved. So if civilization goes, the corpse flower goes. (laughs) Incidentally, two other species that produce recalcitrant seeds include oak trees and coconut palms. 
So huh. you won't have to deal with oak allergies in the apocalypse, but you're also never going to have another pina colada. So I feel like, you know, uh, we should protect them. <laughs> yeah, you win but, some, you lose some, huh? That's yeah, right. Trade-offs. <laughs> but so in light of all this, the Chicago Botanic Garden has recently spearheaded a project called the Tools and Resources for Endangered and Exceptional Plant Species, or TREES program, which actually, if you're <laughs> looking closely, it should be TREEPS. That feels underhanded. They just sort of lowercase the P in plant. Like, no, no, we're just going to skip that word. Um, But it's meant to share resources and knowledge among the various botanical gardens in order to promote biodiversity in the corpse plant as well as six other endangered plant species. So the way it works is that because these plants are so rare, most gardens only have one, if any. So when it blooms, there's no other corpse plants around to pollinate with. And the garden workers have to just get in there with little paintbrushes and put the pollen on themselves. In the past, they've just borrowed pollen from the next closest garden with a corpse plant. But what the TREES program aims to do is create a complete genetic database of all the corpse plants in existence. And then when one is about to bloom, they can look at the genetic book and figure out which botanical garden's corpse plant is the most genetically different and choose the mate that will bring the most diversity to the collection overall. Mm. Wow. And there's actually a lot of precedent for this in the animal world. Zoos and preservations will often use what are called stud books, which is a fantastic name, to (laughs) document (laughs) the genetic lineage of endangered species so they can pick the least inbred ones to mate with, Mm. right? They do these for killer whales at SeaWorld, and, you know, they, they have been tracking a lot of animals for a while. Mm -hmm. Joyce Machinsky, the director of plant conservation at San Diego Zoo Global, says that she thinks the model also applies in the sense that a single species can sometimes become a sort of mascot for conservation, the way Chinese pandas have been used to, like, capture people's hearts and drive fundraising efforts for all endangered animals. Mm. She thinks the corpse flower is ready to become the panda of the plant world because, quote, it's probably just the coolest species on Earth. (laughs) So, you know, we may be having little uh, pins and flyers and all sorts of logos with a corpse flower on them at some point trying to raise money. Man, there's something so dramatic and beautiful about the corpse flower, hearing Mm. its description, especially how it can't be preserved. You know, it will just die out with everything else. Uh, Very fitting of its name. That's true. It is. I'm with Angie a little bit. I don't really understand why people would line up to see one in person because apparently the stench really is overpowering. It's just astoundingly bad. Bad smelling. Well, and well. apparently super accurate to what actual death smells like, where it kind of like coats the inside of your nose. And ugh, I just, wow. <laughs> I I'm going to book my flight right now. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't go to the Chicago Garden because theirs just bloomed a few years ago. It's got who knows when it's going to bloom again. But <sighs> there's always one blooming somewhere, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. Well, The Guardian reports there is a French woman who has been spending the past three years trying to prove she is not dead. Uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm assuming in like a bureaucratic sense, like she's walking around and talking. Uh, yes. It seems like it ought to be pretty obvious. You nailed it right there. Her name is Jean Pouchain, and she has not existed in the eyes of France officials since 2017. Um, wow. You can meet her in the flesh. She obviously appears very much alive and well. The picture they included in the Guardian article is very sweet. She's holding this enormous squishy cat in her arms <laughs> with this kind of plaintive look of, I'm still here. <laughs> but the problem is she was declared dead by a court due to a long-running legal dispute involving a former employee at her cleaning company. 
So mm. she went to see a lawyer who told her it was going to be quickly resolved as she had been to her doctor who certified that she's very much alive. But because there had been a legal ruling, this was not sufficient. So her lawyer, Sylvain Cormier, was also astonished at her greatly exaggerated death. Quote, <laughs> it's a crazy story. I couldn't believe it. I never thought that a judge would declare someone dead without a certificate. But the plaintiff claimed she was dead without providing any proof. And everyone believed her. Nobody checked. Wow. <laughs> so what happened was in 2004, an industrial tribunal had ordered Pushain to pay the former member of staff reportedly let go from her job when her firm lost a major contract. So downsizing, right? About mm. 14,000 euro in damages. As the case was against her company and not Pushain personally, the ruling was never enforced. So in 2009, the employee sued again, but the case was thrown out of court. So the employee informed the industrial tribunal her letters to her former boss were unanswered and she had died. So <laughs> based on that alone, she was scratched from the official records, which invalidated her identity card, driver's license, bank accounts, health insurance, and other official documents necessary to prove her existence. Wow. So as her lawyer sought this week to have her officially resurrected, Pushain accused the former employee of inventing her demise in an attempt to win damages from her heirs. The employee's lawyer counter-argued that Pushain was the author of her own demise and had played <laughs> dead to avoid paying the damages, accusations that she has obviously denied. Quote, uh -huh. I have no identity papers, no health insurance. I cannot prove to the banks that I am alive. I'm nothing. I wow. mean, she did owe the woman 14,000 euros, right? Like, that was the initial problem was she wasn't paying the money she owed her, according to the court, at least. Honestly, the fact that this has dragged on for over a decade. Yeah, it's got to like, cost more than that by now, just in seriously, legal, other legal and, costs. Or it, just in the headache of having to, you know, if she gets sick and has no health insurance, like, I can't even imagine how difficult this must be. Just cough it up. Go into, yeah. like, short-term debt if you need yeah. to. But, like, get your life back. Holy smokes. Yeah. Send a strongly worded tablet. That'll get the job done. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from Mainichi.jp, a Japanese news website, and it's titled, Rent a Person Who Does Nothing in Tokyo Receives Endless Requests Gratitude. Well, so, what? <laughs> yeah, so uh, a 37-year-old Tokyo man who says he rents himself out to other people to do nothing has been inundated with gratitude from Twitter users, indicating people are happy with his new form of support. One user wrote, I'm glad I was able to walk with someone while keeping a comfortable distance where we didn't have to talk but could if we wanted to. Another reflected, I had been slack about visiting the hospital, but I went because he came with me. Huh. Shoji Morimoto has been advertising himself as a person who can eat and drink and give simple feedback but do nothing more <laughs> since June 2018 and has received over 3,000 requests. Whoa! And, yeah, and he has about 270,000 followers on Twitter. Initially, he had offered his rent-a-person-who-does-nothing services for free, but he now charges 10,000 yen, which is roughly $96 per request. Huh. And people rent him for various reasons. Uh, at times, he'll participate in a gaming session to make up numbers, turn <laughs> up to send off people who are moving away, accompany those filing for divorce, or listen to healthcare workers who become mentally unwell due to their exhausting work. Huh. Morimoto commits to doing nothing and basically just gives back channel feedback when someone speaks to him. 
He says, I myself don't like to be cheered on by others. I get upset when people simply tell me to keep on trying. When someone is trying to do something, I think the best thing to do is to help lower the bar for them by staying at their side, which I think is very sweet. Yeah, I mean, he's more like a rent-a-friend, really. I mean, he's not really talking to them a whole lot, but just listening seems like... Yeah, yeah. not even yeah. rent-a-friend, but just rent a present. Yeah. Like, uh-huh. just be yeah. here. And I love that <laughs> he says that part of his services is simple feedback. What does that exactly mean? What is simple feedback in a situation where a couple is divorcing or they're basically using him as a therapist? Just sort of like nodding, being like, oh, yeah, huh. Yeah, I mean, that's honestly what I was imagining. Like, just very slow nod and going like, hmm. Hmm. Which is frankly, I mean, that's what therapists do. He's ready to be qualified. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so a little bit of his backstory is uh, Morimoto got a job with a publisher after finishing a graduate degree, but found it hard to fit in and left. His boss said sarcastically, it doesn't matter if you're here or not. And <laughs> when he was troubled that he couldn't find anything to do on a long-term basis, he was inspired by a person who did nothing but get treated to meals. So not long after, he set up a Twitter account. One 36-year-old writer says she has rented Morimoto on at least 10 occasions. She asked him to stay beside her when meeting a man for the first time, and also had him listen to her talk about her views on love, which she felt she couldn't divulge to her friends, and how she went on an undercover visit to a woman's adult entertainment establishment for her job. She said, He listened to me without shaming me about going to the adult entertainment shop. It felt like a support just to have him by my side without forcing his opinions on me. Nice. Yeah. And Morimoto receives words of gratitude from customers who state that the act of doing nothing serves as support. However, he does remain nonchalant about the praise, saying, I'm not doing it for that purpose. So my only response is, oh, really? (laughs) He He also doesn't want his work to be seen as an act of charity. He says, I'm not a friend or an acquaintance. I'm free of the bothersome things that accompany relationships, but can ease people's sense of loneliness. Maybe it's something like that for me. (laughs) Wow. I mean, it's a low pressure kind of thing. I get it. Yeah. Especially, it sounds like some of these things are for safety. It's like women saying, look, I just need somebody as a sort of presence to be like, yeah, you can't mess with me because there's another dude here watching. Yeah. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if the simple feedback doesn't include calling the police, (laughs) it's kind of a placebo presence as opposed to to like actually you know save your bacon if that's what's called for in a situation yeah but the other person doesn't know that they don't know that he's rented they're like that's maybe her devoted boyfriend who's gonna beat the crap out of them if they (laughs) (laughs) next link next Next link okay this one comes from singularityhub.com It's a a sort of combination of ancient anthropology and modern astronomy that's pretty mind-blowing. Ooh. Yeah. So in the northern sky in December is a well-known cluster of stars called the Pleiades, or the Seven Sisters. In Greek mythology, the Pleiades were the seven daughters of the titan Atlas. Because Atlas was forced to hold up the sky for eternity, he was unable to protect his daughters down on Earth. So to save the Seven Sisters from being raped by the hunter Orion, whose constellation is right next to them, Zeus kindly transformed them into stars, which is a weird way to protect somebody from rape, I guess. But, you know, (laughs) whatever works. But in fact, if you look closely at the Pleiades constellation, you can really only see six stars. In the Greek myth, the story goes that one of the seven sisters fell in love with a mortal and went into hiding, which is why we only see six. But here's where it gets weird. Numerous Aboriginal groups across Australia have a similar fable about that particular constellation. Oh. According to their tradition, what we call Orion is also a hunter or sometimes a group of lusty men, 
And in all the stories, the boys or man in Orion are chasing the seven sisters. And one of the sisters has either died or is hiding or is too young or has been abducted. So again, only six are visible. And there are similar lost pleiad stories found in European, African, Asian, Indonesian, and Native American cultures, all of which clearly regard the constellation as having seven stars of which only six are visible. And they all have some explanation for why the seventh is missing. So anthropologists used to think that Europeans brought the original Greek story with them on their many colonial escapades, and then each culture took it and adapted it as their own. But it's never been a great explanation for why that one story would be so completely embraced by literally everyone they conquered while the rest of the Greek mythology was pretty much ignored. And Mm. when you consider the Aboriginal Australians in particular, the theory pretty much goes out the window because there's evidence that the Aboriginal versions of the story predate European contact. And it couldn't have gone the other direction being shared from the Aboriginal people to the Europeans because they were completely isolated on the Australian continent for up to 50,000 years of human history. So a new book called Advancing Cultural Astronomy has just proposed a different theory. It turns out that there are, in fact, seven bright stars in the Pleiades. It's just that two of them, Pleione and Atlas, are basically right on top of one another and look like a single star unless you have a really good telescope. But like everything in the universe, the stars have been slowly changing their positions over the millennia. And if you go backwards far enough in time, you can find a point in history when all seven stars would have been visible to the naked eye. So it makes sense why all these different cultures would have a story to explain how seven stars became six over time. But it doesn't explain why the Pleiades are always a group of women and why they're always being chased by the men in Orion. So here's the crazy thing. To get to a point where the two stars are clearly visible to the naked eye, you have to go back to around 100,000 B.C., which was also the moment in history when the ancestors of modern humans were just starting their migration out of Africa to all the corners of the world. So the authors of this book argue that the original Seven Sisters story is actually around 100,000 years old, and it traveled outward with the spread of humans, and only then did each culture independently come up with their own explanation for why seven women was becoming six as the stars shifted, which is absolutely insane to me. That an oral tradition could stay alive like that for 100,000 years. I mean, it'd be consistent across regions and people that way. Yeah. And it makes you start to question, like, well, what else do we do that is actually so, 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 so old? We think we made it up, but there's nothing new. Like, somebody else came up with this. I don't know. I It made me want to go look up the Pleiades, at the very least. Well, I mean, it makes me think of a graphic or a thought experiment of, like, how many people had to have kids for you to exist. And it's right. like exponential number, you know, on the scale of like billions of people going throughout history. I mean, I, I understand why it'd be harder to imagine a story going through time, but our genes have made it this far, so why not anything else, I guess? Oh, that's true. Yeah. That makes sense. You could think of it as like a cultural genetic evolution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Well, the hits keep on coming. Evolution always finds a way. And (laughs) National Geographic is now announcing that invasive snakes move their bodies like lassos, which is a totally new mode of locomotion for them. Uh. What? Like, I'm I'm trying to envision it and I can't. Like, are they wrestling cattle? Like... (laughs) I'll tell you what it does make me picture is the snake in the Disney's animated Robin Hood he, like, uses his tail like a little whip thing. He ties on a <laughs> balloon and he flies around. That's what I'm picturing. Yeah. 
You know, you're not that far off. And if you are curious, <laughs> National Geographic does have some night cam video embedded in the article to show you what it looks like. Wow. But you know how sometimes when people kind of have a rope in order to climb a log pole that's vertically aligned, where okay. they kind of wrap it around and kind of like hoist it up and then wiggle up and then hoist that thing around uh -huh. and wiggle up. But it is a totally new mode of locomotion for this particular snake and for snakes in general. They've never seen them move this way. But hey, you know, we're in the 2020s as a decade. And if the last year and this year thus far are any indication, who knows what next snakes will do, right? Yeah, snakes being lassos is not the weirdest thing to come out of this decade. <laughs> yeah. So that's fine. <laughs> so in particular, we're talking about the brown tree snake, which is a tree-dwelling reptile that's native to, of course, Australia, Papua New Guinea, and several Pacific Islands, but it was inadvertently brought to Guam after World War II, probably by cargo ships. Like a lot of these invasive species, it spread rapidly, it obliterated populations of local wildlife, it even drove 10 native bird species extinct. So they've been trying to control these snakes from airdropping drug-filled mice to even bringing in <laughs> snake-detecting dogs. I mean, it, it, they're clearly a pest, but nothing's been successful. So in 2016, there were some ecologists from Colorado State University who had an idea. Let's install these eight inch wide metal cylinders, a kind of baffle used to deter wildlife at the base of bird nest boxes at the U.S. Geological Survey's Brown Tree Snake Laboratory. It's kind of like those squirrel-proof bird feeders, you know, where you've got this, like, metal cylinder around the poles so that the mm -hmm. squirrels can't shimmy up. It's too wide for them. Mm -hmm. So they thought, let's try this. Maybe it'll save the birds from the snakes. And what video cameras revealed is, nope, the snakes can totally get around it. They rope its body around the pole using this lasso to wiggle upward. <laughs> so they've dubbed this newfound behavior lasso locomotion and <laughs> detailed its mechanics in a paper published in January in current biology. It is now the fifth official recognized type of snake movement, in addition to rectilinear or moving in a straight line, lateral undulation, which is the classic snake slither, mm -hmm. side winding, which is used to travel across sand, and concertina locomotion, which is the accordion-like climbing motion. <laughs> Quote, it's so unusual and wild, says Sarah Ruane, an evolutionary biologist at Rutgers. I couldn't get over it. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike the snakes, which did get over the thing. Which clearly <laughs> got over it. Yep. You know, when the scientists can reach a bunch of consensus that essentially boils down to WTF. Yeah. yeah. Feels. <laughs> I gotta say, I think their order of operations was a little weird. Like, they're like, okay, we need to stop these snakes. Step one is airdropping drug-filled mice. <laughs> Step two is a simple barrier. Like, it feels like they should have been in reverse order there. <laughs> you know, it's not clear what the... That was the order as it was laid out in the National Geographic article, but... Oh, um, so maybe drug-filled mice is, like, ongoing. Maybe that's still a thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, eventually the snakes are just going to start injecting the mice into their veins. Oh, then... that's true. That'll do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's All right. If, if they can, If they can move like a lasso they can use a needle it'll be fine yeah. <laughs> uh, next link next link this article comes to us from discovermagazine.com it's titled how medieval europe finally ditched roman numerals hmm. there's a joke that goes like this roman numerals what are they good iv <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like it. <laughs> it's a nice little number pun, but they aren't really good for much, Roman numerals. Just try doing your taxes with them. 
Nope. Oh, uh, no, thank but, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By the 6th century AD and possibly even earlier, a much better system now called the Hindu Arabic number system was developed in India. You're familiar with it. Uh, we yes. use it everywhere. It uses only 10 numerals, 1 through 9 plus 0. And uh, the fact that we can line numbers up in columns makes it really easy to do addition and subtraction. Uh, hopefully nothing I've said is a surprise, right. uh, but, it, yeah. but it wasn't so clear to medieval Europeans. Up until the 13th century, they had to make do with Roman numerals, and it was fine for recording amounts of things, but not so useful for manipulating those amounts. The abacus or counting frame was useful but limited, and for more complex calculations, Roman numerals were basically hopeless. It put serious limits on trade, commerce, and especially science. Meanwhile, cultures that used the Hindu-Arabic system not only had an easier time with basic arithmetic, but they were also able to undertake more complex math and enabled them to make big advances in algebra and geometry while Europeans were just fiddling with their letter numbers. <laughs> so as traders from India worked their way into North Africa, they took their number system with them, and by the 12th century, the Hindu-Arabic system was common in ports along the Mediterranean. Arab settlers had brought the system to Spain, and a few Italian scholars had discovered it and were using it for scientific work, but it wasn't made familiar to many until the year 1202 when the Italian mathematician Leonardo of Pisa, whom we today know as Fibonacci, famous for the number theory oh. in the Fibonacci series, uh -huh. which is, you know, the two previous numbers add up and then you just keep adding the last two numbers together. Right. And you get this very interesting magical sequence. So Leonardo of Pisa wrote a mathematics book called Liber Abaci, or the Book of Calculation, and in it, he urged people to put down the abacus and use the Hindu-Arabic system for calculations, and he showed them how. Fibonacci had learned the system as a child when he spent time in Algeria, and being the genius that he was, he immediately saw the potential. But the new system didn't actually catch on quickly, so for many years, Fibonacci's book was read and understood mostly by scholars who gradually incorporated his teachings into their own books, and even then, the old Roman system, clunky and limited as it was, worked well enough for what it was used for, and few could actually see the possibilities that the new system would open, and habits were really difficult to change. But eventually, the Hindu-Arabic system did take hold in Europe, just like how I thought I would never use algebra in the real world, <laughs> and joke was on me, right? Right. But, uh, <laughs> so though it took some time for the Hindu-Arabic system to be understood and accepted, the changes it engendered were far-reaching, transferring not only trade and the sciences, but everyday life as well. In his book on Fibonacci, The Man of Numbers, Keith Devlin wrote, What Fibonacci did was every bit as revolutionary as the personal computer pioneers, who in the 1980s took computing from a small group of computing types and made computers available to and usable by anyone. It's kind of wild to think that entire civilizations until 1202 yeah. AD were just struggling with Roman numerals the entire way through. Yeah, 1202 like, is very late. I'm surprised. Right. Right. Or whatever, M, M, I know, I'm not going to try. I can't. No. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Just how, how to even like speak them out. The idea of doing long division or tallying up multiple sums with Roman numerals just makes my skin crawl. Yeah. Yeah. Is yep. it M, C, I, I, no, M, C, C, double I? No. Yeah. yeah. No. M, C, C, I, I. That's what we're going to go with here. Really? That's <laughs> I what, think okay, so. we're going with it. All right. Great. <laughs> Next link. <laughs> Next link. All right. Well, this one is a quickie and it's terrifying. 
So uh, <laughs> it comes from sci-fi.com, as in the television network. I had never actually heard of the website before. And the homepage is this really strange combination of like hard science and also media press releases for the kind of stuff you'd find at Comic-Con. So, <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, that in itself was yeah. kind of a cool discovery. We may end up having more articles or we may never use them again. Who knows? But <laughs> back to this article, which is about electric eels. Specifically, the species Electrophorus volti, which is found in the Amazon River Basin in Brazil and can grow to about eight feet long. So much larger than any electric eels we get in our neck of the woods, however close that yeah, is to wow. us, which is not close to Texas. But <laughs> they are capable of delivering a quick high voltage shock of around 860 volts, which they mostly use to stun their prey nearby before eating them. But a new paper in the journal Ecology and Evolution is reporting a never-before-seen behavior in these eels, pack hunting. Okay. Scientists, Yeah. <laughs> and they can open doors. No. Uh, <laughs> scientists say they've witnessed up to 100 eels working together <gasps> to surround a large school of fish, and then at least 10 of the eels, but not all of them, will simultaneously release their charges all at once, resulting in a blast of over 8,600 volts that instantly kills every fish in the vicinity. And, oh, yeah. holy cow. And by working together like this, they're able to kill enough for the whole pack to eat while conserving the energy of most of the pack members on any given hunt. Smart. And there's video. And oh. it is, it's crazy. So, like, it looks from above. You can't see the fish. It's just sort of looking down into the shallow pool that's just full of big old eels, which is creepy enough. And then it's just sort of quietly <laughs> sitting there. And then all of a sudden, the water goes nuts. Like a thousand <gasps> fish spasm and they all just, it's, yeah, it's really <laughs> frightening looking and you would not want to be in that water because it would definitely kill you too. Um, oh my God. <laughs> Co-author David DeSantana, a zoologist at the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History, is quick to point out that we're not likely to see this behavior developing in the smaller electric eels that live closer to home. He says it really only works in a lush environment with a massive abundance of prey, plus a relatively shallow habitat that has lots of rocks and outcroppings for multiple eels to live in. Basically, he says our electric eels are all scrawny little loners who could never find enough friends to pull this off. Which, you know, he says that, but after hearing the lasso snake story, I don't yeah. know. Like, I feel like anything's yeah. possible. <laughs> I mean, you know, you'd think that the loner eels would be the eight-foot-long ones, but no, there's a hundred eight-foot-long yeah. Electric eels launching an EMP grenade into the water. <laughs> like, well, I hope that the writers of Aquaman are taking note of this development because I could see this coming up to a really cool type of villain who like, oh, yeah. can speak with the eels or maybe he has like a mirror universe version. And it belongs on sci-fi.com. That's what this is. This is a viral <laughs> plant so that they can then introduce their new series. All right. We'll keep it out. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. Some of the articles that we did not have time to get to include the status of supersymmetry, Caligula's Garden of Delights unearthed and restored, and a new drug for peanut allergies is offering hope for food allergy sufferers. If you want to get in touch with us, share your opinions or your deepest thoughts or fears or whatever, you can email us at feedback at di.show. We also have some cool international news. We got some random statistics. I don't know from where. It turns out that our podcast in the education category, which I'm not sure we fall into, but that's fine. <laughs> it, we are currently ranked 87th in all educational podcasts in the country Whoa. of Estonia. 
So. Hey! <laughs> Thanks, Estonia. Yeah. And uh, the other piece of international news is that we have a new patron on Patreon. And this person is amazing, not only because they support us, but because they are the first person to support us in euros. So that's oh, nice. Oh, wow. Yeah. And if you would like to be as cool as Lou Wrenches and support us, you can go to patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Wayspur Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye. Thank you.